Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. So uh, today we're going to be reading um, from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 1 through 25, which if you're reading the, one of the books of the Bible, or books of the Bible, but Bibles at the back, which I think actually they're all gone because I've got one and the other two are missing, then it's page uh, 798 or um, just look it up on your phone. So we're reading 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 1 through 25. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies, prophesies speaks to the people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather you have prophecy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church might be edified. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what will, good will I be unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the pipe or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak unintelligible intelligible words that with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of something, of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to that speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I also will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving, since they do not know what you are saying? You are giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law it is written, with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all, as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will then fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. 
Thanks very much for reading, Ruth. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, it's nice to see you all this morning. I was up here just before. I didn't introduce myself. I'm Simon, uh, lead pastor here at City Light Church, North Adelaide. Um, I'm aware that as we're working through, if you're new, we're working through um, the last parts of the letter of 1 Corinthians, a letter written by the Apostle Paul midway through the first century, um, or, you know, first century AD. Um, and uh, we're in the middle of working through chapters 12, 13, and 14. I'm aware that these chapters raise all kinds of questions for us if you're a believer, been around church for a while, and particularly depending on your sort of church background, your Christian backgrounds. Um, I'm not going to be able to answer every question in the next 30 minutes that you might have regarding sort of prophecy and tongues and spiritual gifts and things like that. Um, I'm going to do my best to answer some of them, um, but I do want you to feel free to ask me afterwards, like I'll be up at the back door on the street afterwards, so please don't leave here wondering. Um, also, Next Sunday, um, sort of after the message, we're also going to have sort of an open question time again. Um, I described that as watching the pastor squirm last time we did that. Um, so if you just want to watch that, come back for that next week. But if you have questions, please ask me of them today up the back, but also we'll have an open question time next week. I'm going to pray um, and then we'll, I'll ask you a question. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your deep care for us and for giving us this large book, the Bible, uh, with so many details in it that we are to apply to our lives. Uh, Father, so many things that are clear and obvious and essential to our Christian walk. Uh, Father, we also find some things here hard to understand uh, that perhaps we won't find full clarity on this side of the new creation. But Father, thank you for your care and concern for us. Help us now to rightly understand this passage today and work out how to relate to one another in a way that brings great good to us, joy to our souls and glory to our Saviour Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. I'm going to start with a pretty blunt question, which I'm going to get you to turn to the person next to you and ask them as well, okay? Here's the question. It's not that blunt, but anyway. Yeah, there you go. I'll call it blunt anyway. Why do you come to church? Why do you come to church? Why are you here today? I get paid to be here. Um, no, no one else does. Um, why do you come to church? Turn to the person next to you. I'll give you 45 seconds. Ask the person around you, why, why do you come to church? Why are you here today? Go for it. I'll kind of try and pull you all back together. Hey, wee, hey, there you go. Thus says the Lord. No. <laughs> Clearly you have more reasons to be at church than me. I just get paid to be here. No, um, I won't get you to feedback. We'll just get stuck in. There are, there are numerous ways I reckon you could answer that question. I reckon there was enough conversation here to probably cover all of the reasons why you might come to church. Uh, you might say, look, I'm a Christian. Um, it's good for me to, to come to church. I like people. Uh, I wanna serve. I wanna use the gifts that God's given me. That's why I come to church. There are numerous ways you could answer that question, but certainly 1 Corinthians 14 is a chapter in the Bible that makes you ask that question. Why do you come to church? Why come to church? And it's important to, to know the answer to that question. And I think it's important that each one of us, if you're a follower of Jesus, have an answer to that question, at least in part. Um, sometimes we do things just because we do them, right? Like Sunday morning, 
I go to church at 10 a.m. at the Estonian Centre in North Adelaide, and routines and rhythms have a place in our lives, they have a purpose. But why do you do them? You know, certainly when disruptive things come along, like a coronavirus, and bring with it all the anxieties and stresses of that, it kind of makes you ask the question like, you know, should I go to church with coronavirus? A big part of the answer to that question though is like, why do I go to church normally? Partly, but not the only reason. Why do you go to church normally on a Sunday at 10 a.m.? Well, the Apostle Paul would say, you're here to build up others. You're here to build up others. Now, I don't know if you, you spotted that this is the issue in 1 Corinthians 14 as it was read, or the first part was read by Ruth today. Uh, the bulk of it, Paul's comparing these, these two different spiritual gifts, right? The gift of tongues, speaking in ecstatic, unintelligible languages, and he's comparing that with the gift of prophecy. He's comparing these two gifts, more details on those as we work our way through the passage, And his insistence throughout the passage, I hope you saw this, is that the gift of prophecy is far more useful than the gift of tongues. The gift of prophecy is far more useful than the gift of tongues. And you say, oh, thanks, Jacko. So glad you clarified that for me this morning. I'm glad I came to church today. I've always wondered which of those two is most useful. It's been vexing me since I turned to Christ. I've been fluctuating gifts of tongues and prophecy and prophecy in tongues. Thanks so much, I can, I, can just, I can rest tonight. You're probably not thinking that, right? But the principle that drives Paul's conclusion in this text is timeless and occurs several times. He wants us to use our gifts to build others up. So chapter 14, hope you have it in front of you. Chapter 14, end of verse five, Paul wants us to, uh, wants it that the church is edified, The word is like an edifice, right? Built up, like a wall, built up. Um, End of verse 12, excel in those gifts that build up the church. Precisely the same verb as edify, right? The Bible translators just mix it up, build up, edify, just to kind of keep us awake. Verse 17, chapter 14, Paul says, you know, with your gift of tongues, you may well be giving thanks well enough, but no one is edified, no one's built up. That's the issue. You want gifts that edify, that, that build up other people. So when we, as, when we, as a, we gather as a church, Paul wants the church, the Corinthians back in first century AD and us today, 21st century Adelaide, to be concerned with what will edify, what will build others up. It's not the only thing going on when we gather together at church. But Paul would roll it all together and say something like this. When we gather as a group of Christians, we gather in the presence of God, God meets with us and he builds us up as we serve one another. You get that? So when we gather together as Christians, we gather in the presence of God and God is with us and he builds us up as we encourage one another. It's fundamentally God's work, right? He builds us up, but he builds us up as we build up one another. That's how it works. So chapter 14, right? Half this week, half next week. Um, Robert and Rosalie said they were thinking about chapter 14 on the way here, and they said, oh, I wonder what, you know, what that next bit means. I'm like, you're going to have to wait till next week. Sorry, so come back. Right? 
half this week, half next week. The headings, if you have an NIV, are kind of helpful here, pretty helpful. So verses 1 to 25, Paul is mainly concerned with what you do when you gather as a church, and what you do when you gather as a church means it needs to be intelligible. And verses, uh, you know, so that's why this morning, right, it needs to be intelligible. That's why I decided not to speak in Latin this morning. I'm sorry if you're a Latin speaker. It's got to be intelligible. Verse 26 to the end of the chapter, it's to be ordered. But the whole chapter hangs together with this idea. I want people to be built up and turned to Christ. I want people to be built up and I want other people to be built in. That's what he wants. We're going to work through verses 1 to 25 pretty much as the sections fall if you have a Bible open in front of you and I'll make a few conclusions at the end. But here's the basic shape, right? If we go back one then we can all read it. There you go. This is basically what we're going to work through, right? Desire gifts that build up the church. Unintelligible tongues don't do that, but prophecy is better and can bring conviction, right? That's how we're going to go. So um, desire gifts that build, if you're a note taker, desire gifts that build up the church, verses one to five. Um, unintelligible gifts, uh, unintelligible tongues don't, verses six to 19. Prophecy is better than, uh, prophecy is better, leads to conviction verses 23 to 25. So firstly, verses 1 to 5. Desire gifts that build up the church. Verse 1, uh, chapter 14. Follow the way of love, pursue love, and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. So those two imperatives, right, those two commands need to be held together. Follow the way of love, pursue love. We were encouraged to do that last week in chapter 13 and also eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, but do so out of a concern to love others. Now, especially prophecy and not tongues. Well, why not? Verse two, for anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. Now look, you can, you can read a lot of books on this, right? But no one really knows what he means in truth by tongues. We don't know. Uh, the references to tongues only come here in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, and in Acts chapter 2, uh, the, the first book we find after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the Scriptures. Um, and it seems that in those two places, we are dealing with different things when it comes to tongues. So in Acts chapter two, um, it's, it's the day of Pentecost and, and Jesus' followers stand up, they're filled with the Holy Spirit and they start speaking in languages they didn't know when they rolled out of bed that morning, right? And, and suddenly like these, these guys and girls, are, they're polyglots. They're speaking in a variety of languages. I don't know, some in Greek, some in Persian, some in Egyptian, you know, and this is, they're, they're, they're amazed, right? They're saying, what am I, like, what am I saying? I don't, I don't know, but others seem to be understanding what I'm saying. People are coming to know Jesus as I speak in these other languages. You see, they're human languages that the audience, members of the audience around them understand. They're declaring the marvelous things that God has done through Christ in all these different intelligible languages. Here in 1 Corinthians 4, 14 verse two, it is, it's different because they're mysteries uttered by the Spirit and no one seems to understand them. 
I mean, Corinth was a, a multicultural, we heard last week, cosmopolitan kind of city, like London and Sydney and Melbourne and like Adelaide's, I think, kind of growing in its multiculturalness. But no one in the church understands, right? It's, it's not a human language. It's a mystery uttered by the Spirit. It is a language spoken, verse 2, to God, not to any other humans. Now, I don't know, in a setting like this, City Light Church, North Adelaide, I take it there'll be a number of us here who speak in the gift of tongues, who have tongues. Some will have it, some won't have it. At the end of chapter 12, right, we're told that there, you know, no one gift is ubiquitous amongst the people of God. Some will have the gift of tongues, others won't have the gift of tongues. Some of us will know that, and some of us will speak in a language that we don't really know what it is. Uh, Adele has been going through, a real, my wife Adele has been going through a really hard time. Uh, Adele has the gift of tongues. I can speak about her because she's not in the room. But um, Adele has the gift of tongues. And, and in her anxiety and in her stress and in her concern for things, she found herself um, over the last few weeks at times on her own, in the quietness of her own prayer time, praying with tongues. She was doing it on her own, at home. Um, and that's really good, really encouraging. And it edified her, it built her up, it helped her. But Paul says, don't use it in the church. Don't use tongues in the church. That's what he'll get to. Now there's some extra biblical, archaeological evidence from other texts that in the first century, in the Mediterranean area, some pagan cults love to work themselves up into a kind of ecstatic, chaotic kind of frenzy and speak in ecstatic languages. And it may be, it may be, that the church at Corinth had adopted that sort of habit in the church. It may be, from the world around them. I, I can't, you know, be sure of that, but maybe. That's tongues. But prophecy, prophecy, perhaps we're a bit more familiar with prophecy. Certainly there are more references, at least to the word prophecy in the Bible. Um, like at least 200, I think, at least um, in the New Testament. Like, let me put three little pegs in the ground for us when we come to thinking about prophecy. Firstly, in the New Testament, prophecy is not infallible, but it must be weighed. Um, so it's not the same as Old Testament prophecy, right? So prophecy in the New Testament is not infallible. It's got to be weighed to determine if, if, it, if it's valid or not. So it's not the same as Old Testament prophecy, right? Or the prophets in the Old Testament who say, like, thus says the Lord, and it's like a direct word from the living God through a prophet. You know what? If a prophet in the Old Testament stood up and said something which wasn't from God, you'd get killed. If they stand up and say, thus says the Lord, and it distracts you from God, like, that's pretty brutal, right? You know, praise the Lord for Jesus, that we don't have to do that anymore. But, but it's obviously authoritative in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, any prophecy is to be weighed to determine if it's valid or not. We'll get to this next week, but chapter 14, verse 29 Two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And, and Paul will say a similar thing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19. You can read that later. That a prophecy given in a church must be weighed by the people to see if it's valid or not. Do you see the contrast? So we mustn't ignore prophecy, whatever it may be. We mustn't treat it with contempt 
but we mustn't just accept everything. We're meant to test what the prophecy is and, and then hold on to what is good. So there's one peg, it's not infallible, needs to be weighed. A second peg regarding New Testament prophecy is this, it's not authoritative and can be ignored. New Testament prophecy. So Acts 21, right? We're not gonna open that part, but Acts 21, you get the prophet Agabus comes and tells the apostle Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, Paul, you're gonna get bound and you're gonna get put in prison. You know, so don't go there. That's a prophecy that he had. And what does Paul do? He says, thanks for the advice, I'm going anyway. And off he goes. And he is bound, he is put in prison, but Paul believed it was still the right thing to do. So there's a word of prophecy, it is true, it's completely accurate, totally ignored, and that's fine. So in the New Testament, prophecy is not infallible, it's not authoritative necessarily. And thirdly, in 1 Corinthians, it is not necessarily predictive about the future, rather it is for the building up of people. It's not predictive necessarily about the future, it is helpful in building up the people. I mean, it can be, right? Agabus said, if you go to Jerusalem, this will happen in the future. But here in 1 Corinthians 14, verse three, prophecy, have a look, verse three, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Strengthening, encouragement, and comfort, they're all in the present tense. It's not future, it's present. So it's not about what will happen. Does that make sense? So what is it positively? Well, we are certainly told three things about the positive nature of prophecy. Verse three, a word of prophecy will strengthen, encourage, and comfort. They're slightly overlapping words, right, we have here. So strengthen, the root of the word strengthen is actually the same as build up or edify. Um, I think of the time that I badly injured my ankle playing mixed netball, never played it since. My dad once said to me, Simon, you're, you know, you're cycling, you do triathlon, you step onto that netball court, your career's over. I'm like, whatever, dad. Stepped out, gone. Like, never played again. But I remember I did my ankle and you know, I spent some time with a physio who helped me strengthen my ankle. Have you ever been on one of those wobble boards? You know, I'm, so I'm trying to mend my ankle, I'm on my wobble board, you know, and he's throwing things at me and I'm trying to catch them. What's he doing that for? To laugh at me. No, he's doing that to strengthen me, to build me up, making what was weak strong again. That's the, that's the language that Paul's got going on here with prophecy, encouraging. Biblically, it has two senses, so strengthening and encouraging, biblically, two senses. One is kind of like, oh, there, there, it's gonna be okay. The other one is, come on, get on with it. You know, like, same word, context determines what it looks like. So a parent can walk up to a child and sort of sit down next to them and say, let me sit down next to you and I'm gonna help you with your physics homework. I'll help you, you're gonna get there in the end. That's actually my worst nightmare as a parent when Stella sits down with me and says, can you help me with my physics? I'm like, talk to your mother. No, like, but you know, you're gonna get there, it's gonna be okay. The other one is like when I'm a father on the sideline at soccer, looking at my son going, come on, Sebastian, score a goal. You know, like one's more forceful, One's more gentle, encouraging. You get it? Does that make sense? One's more gentle, one's more forceful. And then comfort. A word of comfort or consolation. The word actually doesn't appear very often in the New Testament, but you might be familiar with this. You know, when Lazarus dies and 
people come to his sisters, Mary and Martha, and they comfort them. It's a really tender word, comfort. Strength and encourage and comfort. And Paul says, that's what I want to see taking place when the church gathers. So these two gifts are contrasted and in verses two to three, the contrast is fairly obvious. So tongues are spoken not to people but to God, but prophecy is intelligible words spoken to people. Tongues are unintelligible. Prophecy, everyone can understand. Tongues only edify the person speaking the tongue, verse four. Prophecy, uh, prophecy edifies the, the whole church. And so you're asking the question, though, so, so what does a word of prophecy then kind of actually look like? What does it look like? I don't want to steal too much from, from next week, but, but I think it's more often than not like a, a personal word of encouragement or comfort, um, you know, here, or, or I think often of our discipleship groups. Um, I think prophecy takes place in our discipleship groups where a word of, the, a word of uh, as part of scripture is, is looked at and explained and then someone might go, look, I want to encourage you, strengthen you, comfort you through this particular passage or, or I feel like this means this to, to you. Uh, I think prophecy happens a lot in our discipleship groups or, or words shared with one another after the formal part of our time together. You know, so after the, the, the formal part of our gathering here on a Sunday, someone comes up and says, you know, wasn't that interesting, you know, that we looked at today in the Bible and what it said about this and it made me think about you. Uh, and what it made me think about you was this. You know, so you hear the Bible opened and you think of someone and you go, I'm going to go and talk to them and say, as I heard that read and explained, I thought of you and I want to speak that into your life. Right? You need to be careful with that, by the way. Right, so for example, the passage last week that Sam opened up, love is patient and kind, not easily angered, and I thought of you, that's probably not very nice. That's probably more like a grudge or having an ax to grind, you know. But as we sat listening to the word today at church or sat together in DG, I thought, I thought and I wonder if this applies to X, Y, and Z. I, I think that's what it looks like. I actually wonder if we should change the name of our discipleship groups to prophecy groups like PGs, wouldn't that be cool? Where we sort of do speak into each other's lives in light of the word of God and things are weighed and that sort of stuff. I think our eldership meetings are kind of where prophecy takes place so an idea is put on the table for what we should do in our church or what the future you know, of our church could look like and, and we hope that our elders are kind of mature people who know the scriptures and love Jesus and then together our elders kind of weigh up whether that is you know, a good thing, is it a right thing and we pray about it and we weigh up that prophecy or that word. I think that's what's going on. So desire gifts that build up the church. Paul says, look, you know, like tongues, the gift of tongues is absolutely wonderful and lovely, but exercise that gift mostly on your own, not when you gather. You need another miracle, right, of interpretation if that tongue is going to be of value to the whole church. When the church gathers, I want people to be strengthened and encouraged and consoled and comforted. Use gifts to do that. Let's desire gifts that build up the church. Then he, Paul has this really long section, second point, um, verses six to 19. Unintelligible gifts probably don't do that for the church. And now clearly the Corinthians, this is unintelligible tongues, don't kind of do that building up work when the church gathers. 
Now the Corinthians, right, clearly were obsessed with the gift of tongues. So Paul needs to kind of spill a bit of ink um, in order to deal with the particular issue. I don't want to spend nearly as much as time as Paul does here because I don't think we're obsessed in the same way that the Corinthians were about the gift of tongues. But verse 6 is the headline. Have a look at verse 6. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? And then you don't get a mention, actually, of prophecy again until like verse 22. It takes a long time. He'll just hammer the use of the gift of tongues for a while in a church. Um, No problems exercising the gift on your own. Just want to make that really clear, but perhaps not in church. And then Paul gives these three examples to kind of back it up, um, his point. So verse 7, our first one comes in verse 7. Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the pipe or the harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Okay, let's play for a moment, church. Name that tune. Tell me what I'm singing. La, 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 la. Anyone know that tune? You're, yeah? Far out. Ross, Ross, we have to have a word later, mate. Like, seriously. That's the point. You can't distinguish the tune, right? Paul's point is no one has a clue what song that is, whether it's la, 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 or I was going to do ba, ba, ba. Then I thought someone would say ba, ba, black sheep. Yeah, there you go. Failure. I just probably can't hold the same note very long. Speaking in tongues, Paul is saying, like, speaking in tongues really is just not, it's, it's kind of useless. Or verse 8, another example. Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? Oh, the enemy is coming. Quick, blow the trumpet. Like, you know, no, you're not going to save anyone's life blowing that thing, are you? Right? And then verse 9, it's like speaking in a different foreign, uh, foreign language. So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. You see, if you speak in tongues, in the gathering, it'll be like people from completely different countries trying to understand one another, what one what one another is trying to say. It's about as useful as me standing up here today and speaking Hungarian, Anyone understand Hungarian here today? There you go. I could have tried. I could have just done something, right? Sounding Hungarianish and no. Anyway, useless. Useless. He's saying. Unintelligible, unintelligible tongues don't build others up. They don't do others any good directly. Now, I don't think this is our issue here at City Light Church, North Adelaide. But it's worth asking ourselves, right? Are there unintelligible practices that we do have here? in our church. If you're here as a guest from like another church or you know, you're someone here who has yet to be convinced of the truth, beauty and relevance of Jesus and you think like, this is just odd. Like, why do they do that? Please let me know. Like, please come and talk to me. I'd love to, I'd love to help sort of, I don't know, translate it for you or at least you can correct me. But Paul gives a few more details. Verse 13 For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. Well, that would be useful to them, I guess. Uh, This speaking in tongues is clearly related, isn't it, to um, singing and praying. Uh, Verse 14, 
For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I'll also sing with my understanding. It's a really interesting combination. Paul clearly wants both mind, our understanding, same word, and spirit involved in our praying and our singing and in all of our gathering. You know, if you don't have your mind involved, right, what, what is that? You're likely to be deceived or, or not really engaged, to be honest. But if all you have is engaged is your mind and not the spirit, like the whole of you, then that'll end up just being distant, kind of an academic exercise. And that's not really what the Lord wants for you or for me. He wants mind and spirit engaged. Whole self when we pray and when we sing. And verse 16 through 19, Paul just like really just underlines the point. Verse 16, otherwise, when you're praising God in the spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of an inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving? Since they do not know what you're saying. You are giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. No one else is built up. It's nice for you, but no, not, no one else benefits. And then Paul really drives it home. Verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. So there, says Paul. No, not really. Like, you know, Paul's not saying, well, I'm just saying this because you've got cool gifts that I don't have, so I'm just going to show you. Like, I've got this gift, Paul says, in greater potency than all of you have it. But verse 19, in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. I did some calculations during the week. I can't do physics, but I can do a little bit of maths. I think 10,000 words equates to about speaking for like one and a half to two hours. Um, depends how fast you speak, right? But let's say it's 10,000 words, one and a half to two hours. Five intelligible words, Paul says, is better than two hours of listening to someone or a group of people speaking in tongues. It made me think, right? What would be my most useful five-word sermon? My most useful five-word sermon. What would yours be? Here's some options. Five words. And you're saying, I wish your sermons were five words, Jacko. Wish, just, I'm going to pray for that. The spiritual gift of Jacko speaking five-word sermons. Here's view. Jesus will take you home. That's five words. Pretty good sermon. Your father knows your needs. That's all right. Flee sin more than coronavirus. There's another one. Or here's one from Rebecca McLaughlin. You know the author of Confronting Christianity? Put up on, on Twitter. Love, you know, Rebecca and I are just good mates. No, we're not. Um, we're Twitter friends, which means we're not friends at all. Anyway, but... Um, this is hers, I love it. Jesus is Lord, repent, believe. Do you get the point? I want people to understand what is being said. We want people to understand what is being said. Why? So they're built up and people are built in. So they're strengthened, encouraged and comforted. And I can do more with five intelligible words not two hours of speaking in tongues. Desire gifts that build up the church. Unintelligible gifts don't. 
And thirdly, he turns his attention to gifts, guests, inquirers, and not yet, not yet Christians, and says that prophecy can bring conviction. Uh, prophecy is better and can bring conviction. Verse 20 to 25. Um, verse 20, um, here's a blunt comment. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regards to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In regards to evil, be, be infants. Nope, not, not saying be naive or foolish or clueless, but in regards to evil, just don't go there. And then he inserts a curious quote from Isaiah 28 in verse 21 here. Um, have a look at verse 21. In the law it is written, with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now Paul draws this quote out of Isaiah chapter 28. Um, by the time you get to Isaiah chapter 28, big prophecy in the Old Testament, um, God has been speaking by this time clearly to his people Israel, right? Prophetic words through the prophet Isaiah. They've been hearing Isaiah, you know, the Lord speaking to them through Isaiah for ages. Clear, simple, straightforward words from the Lord. And guess what Israel's done? Not listened. They've ignored the Lord. And so God says, okay, let me tell you what's going to happen. The Assyrians are going to invade you, Israel, and then you'll hear foreign tongues. The Assyrians will come. Uh, they won't be just talking to you because they, they feel like they want to be friendly. They'll be talking to you in foreign languages because they've broken into your land. They've invaded your country. So in, Israel, in Isaiah's time, to hear tongues is a sign of God's judgment, a sign you've been invaded and broken. So tongues are a sign of judgment back then. So why does Paul introduce it here? Well, probably some in Corinth are, were boasting, right? Come to our church services on Jeffcott Street, North Adelaide. They're wild. They're crazy. They're off the charts, these gatherings. Come and see what God is doing. Come and see how God is supernaturally at work. And Paul says, don't do that. Because all that's going to do, if you bring guests into that space, they're going to, it's where things are just unintelligible and disordered, what will happen? Verse 23, so if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquires around believers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? Like they'll just say you're all nuts. By contrast, verse 24, if a believe, an unbeliever or inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, speaking intelligible words to each other, strengthening, encouraging, comforting, preaching five word sermons, etc. What does it say? Verse 24, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all. As the secrets of their hearts are laid bare, so they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. The contrast is really simple. Here is what can happen, right? Tongues is a sign for unbelievers, a sign of judgment with the outcome. You lot are out of your mind. Whereas prophecy is a sign for believers, it's a sign of God being at work and some guests will come in, fall down, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, become Christians because they'll say, surely God is at work among you. That's what he's saying. Why is prophecy a gift for believers? Verse 22, I think it's because through it some people can become believers. I think that's Paul's point. So this whole passage, right, is slightly eccentric to our ears, comparing these two gifts of the Lord, unintelligible languages from the Lord, more next time, it's a good gift, lovely, primarily do it on your own, not in church. 
There is prophecy, speaking words to strengthen, encourage and comfort and console each other. That's what I want to see, says Paul. Let me pick up um, three, just some important principles then for our church here. Um, three takeaways. Um, let me share with you three. Here's three takeaways. I think they're coming. Here we go. Purpose, attitude and planning. Um, three takeaways um, from 1 Corinthians 14 that I think is helpful for us today as we live in this place and seek to make Jesus known. Um, the first one, I think we learned from 1 Corinthians 14, I think we learned something about purpose here. It seems the primary focus of church is to meet with God and to encourage one another. And Paul expects there to be not yet Christians in the gathering. Right? So we want to hold those two things together. Right? Our primary purpose is to, to meet with God and he will build us up when we gather in this kind of way as we encourage one another and guests will always be there. So, so again, if you're here and you wouldn't yet call yourself a follower of Jesus, we don't design what we do when we gather here on a Sunday morning kind of for you. But if there is anything weird that we do here on a Sunday morning, please just please say something. I'll be at the back door. You can say, that was weird. Can you tell me why? So there's something about purpose, right? We, we gather together in God's presence. He builds us up as we encourage one another. That's the purpose of our gathering. Slightly longer, secondly, is that we learn something about our attitude. I think 1 Corinthians 14 challenges us when it comes to our attitude. When we come to church, right, we don't say, well, what's in it for me? What's in it for me today? But we do ask, how can I encourage, build up others? You know, Paul would say, right, when you gather together on a Sunday morning, I don't know how many were in the room, you can't have a church gathering where we have 80 different, unique, individual encounters with the Lord. That's not what we all come together to do, to each have our own like little individual time with the Lord. That's not the picture of a healthy church. We come and meet with God collectively and we encourage each other and God builds us up as a body of Christ. In the 10 years that I've been working full-time in Christian ministry, I can only think of, of one instance where someone came to me out loud. This is, by the way, it wasn't at this church, so you can go, oh, this wasn't me. No, um, but a person, you know, or a person came up to me and said, like, you know, I don't know, the others were speaking with great honesty or, I don't know, something else. But this person just walked up to me and said, I'm only here for me and the Lord, Simon. I love taking the Lord's Supper, but I hate it when anyone talks to me afterwards. Hate it, hate it when we sing after the Lord's Supper because I've got to look around at other people. And Simon, you know what really ticks me off is when we're celebrating the Lord's Supper and you say, as you take the Lord's Supper, look around at other people. I hate that. Please stop it. It was a bit unusual. You know, most people come up to me at the back door and say, oh, Simon, thanks for the message today. You know, off they go. You know, this was like, raw. But just slightly have that attitude somewhere in our hearts you know it's it's what am I it's for me you know it's quite easy to think isn't it oh that child is ruining my worship oh it's my child you know like <laughs> half the time I'm sitting over there and you hear this bang into the wall I'm like far out that's that's oh 
someone else's child, then it's like, Rah! it's mine. I hate that. You know, you, you, know, you say, oh, I just wish you would wrap it up and move on. I've got other things planned today. You know, rah, rah. Or, or thanks for that. Yeah, see you later. Got to go. Like, you know, you go flying. Or you roll over in bed and you think, yeah, don't feel like it this morning. By the way, I kind of feel like I feel all those things. I'm not just having a go at everyone. But it's not about you, really. It's not about me. We come together to, to, to build others up. And as we do that, you benefit. We all benefit. You ask the question, why am I going to church? Not fundamentally for me. It's for the sake of others. Because we're not here as spectators, brothers and sisters. We're here to play our part, take our place in the building up of God's people here at City Light Church, North Adelaide. Playing our part in the strengthening and the encouraging and the comforting. And can I just say on this point, like, I do sometimes wake up in the morning and go, oh, I'll get paid for this, right? But, oh, you know, I don't know if I want to go to church today. I feel that. But I, I realise, right, just, just simply being here is an encouragement. You know, whenever I see people just walking through those doors every morning, I'm just going, yes, so good to see Eloise. Yes, Jim's here. Like, I just love that. And even though Jim doesn't say anything to me, I don't know what's going on. No, I'm just saying, no, no, just joking, Jim. Like, just, you be, just people being here, it's encouraging, I'm not alone. I'm not doing this Christian thing on my own. It's just good for our souls, good for our bones to see each other. Purpose, attitude, last comment, pretty practical. Coming to church takes planning and thought. If we take 1 Corinthians 14 seriously, then coming to church does take a bit of planning and thought, just a little bit at least, brothers and sisters, right? Look, I know, I know, I know this deeply. I know just getting to church on Sundays, slightly clean, mostly dressed, at least your top teeth clean and like most of the crew accounted for. For some people, that's just like, yes, victory, triumph, we're here. Some seasons in life mean getting here at 10 a.m. Is, is, that's a victory, right? Praise the Lord. But just a little bit of thought can go a long way. If I get to church just a little earlier, then I'm better placed to receive from the Lord myself and I'm better placed in a better place of uh, peace of mind to be able to strengthen, encourage, and comfort and console others, guaranteed. Even before that, right? I don't know, I don't want to get too deep and personal here, but even like when you're showering or, or bathing, I don't know, whatever you do, whenever you're showering or brushing your teeth, just thinking anyone I can, just thinking in your head, anyone I can speak to today, anyone I can get alongside and encourage and strengthen and console today, you know, if I see them at church, Maybe as you're brushing your teeth or showering with whatever you shower with, just pray. Lord, guide me to someone today that I can speak a word of prophecy into their lives, who I can strengthen, who I can encourage. You know, there's a little book. There's a little book here called How to Walk Into Church. And you're going, someone wrote a book called How to Walk Into Church? Well, they like had nothing better to do with their lives. This is actually a really good little book. Um, it's just about being deliberate, thoughtful, rather than just sort of rolling in and barreling in and sort of catching your breath. It's like actually what a bit of, a bit of intentionality as we come. It's an encouragement there. A little bit of planning and 
will probably lead to, I'm sure, a bit more edification around the place. More on this next time, but on the issue of prophesying to another, I think that means that as you, as you hear the sermon, as we sing, as we participate in the Lord's Supper, as we pray, you know, be open to what God is saying to you. Be listening to what God is saying to us. Is there something that I feel God is speaking to our whole church? And share it with me, share it with Sam, one of the elders, share it with someone. You know, the other week when Tim Patrick was here speaking on how we ought not to have sort of snobbery in our church, how we ought to not have any sort of, you know, social strata, the elites and then sort of everyone else down here. Like I felt like we perhaps as a church need to lean into that a bit and go like, is there any snobbery or social elitism in our church? Weigh that. And if there is, then do something about it. So as we hear the word of God, which is living and active, are we actually responding to it? If you, if you hear things and you go, yeah, I think we need to address that as a church. Or, you know, in that sermon, I really thought of Naomi. I wrote you down, actually, Naomi. But no, not really. But anyway, like, I th- as I heard that sermon, I thought of Naomi. I'm going to go over and encourage her. After the formal time of gathering, when prophesying takes place, as we go around strengthening, encouraging, and comforting, don't waste that time. So when we finally wrap up the last song, when I sit down and finally stop talking, we get to the end, let's not waste that time. I am convinced that's one of Satan's favourite times in the gathering. The minute we say, see you next week, Satan comes in and starts grabbing stuff away so that we don't do that strengthening, encouraging, comforting stuff. Let's, Let's not let him do that. Let's prophesy into each other's lives. So why do you come to church? Why are you here? We meet together in the presence of God and he will edify us through our serving of one another. Paul is saying, don't just come to church asking what's in it for me. Come ready. Come prepared to build other people up and be ready to prophesy. Build each other up. As Paul says, pursue love. Desire the spiritual gifts, especially gifts that will strengthen, encourage and comfort others. Gifts that build us all up. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, um, in one sense, this is so obvious to us. Uh, We follow a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for us. Father, so to come to a gathering like this or one of our midweek gatherings, our DGs, and to think that, you know, just what's in it for me is obviously not what it means to follow Christ. So by your spirit, Father, change us and grow us all. Grow in us a desire to serve. And what a wonderful church that would be. Father, even in the remainder of our time this morning, as we sing, as we participate in the Lord's Supper and as we talk to one another, Uh, Might we be at that work of strengthening, encouraging and comforting each other. That we would get busy even today at that work of building each other up. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.